more we trust in the God of hope, the more we will abound in hope for his glory. Let us pray. Father in heaven, even as we have just sung, even in the, the prayer of confession that we lifted up to you, we find words of hope, words of hope for sinners who have an abundance of sin. And yet, Father, the redeeming work of Christ has brought us to have an abundance of hope. What a transforming work you have done in our lives. And may, may we be even greater in our thanksgiving for all that you have done for us as we work through this passage in your word. The Holy Spirit, guide us, impart your word to our hearts. Bless the preacher and bless the hearer of the preached word. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, and I hope you do, please turn to Romans uh, chapter 15 as we read this morning verses 8 through 13 on this third Sunday of Advent. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. For what are people known? The late Charlie Munger, vice president of Berkshire Hathaway and legendary investor, was known for his Mungerisms, witty, sagely advice. A few weeks before Munger's death, just this past November at the age of 99, he was still speaking Mungerisms. In an interview with a reporter, he was, he was asked about what he did and what we should do when we have a rough patch in life. And this is the mongerism. You have to soldier on, Charlie said. You can cry all right, but don't give up. Don't quit. Mongerisms characterized Charlie Munger. In our text today, Paul addresses the question, what should characterize the Christian life? For what should Christians be known? And the Bible tells us that Christians should be known for many things. We should be known for our love. We should be known for the fact that we are committed to the Scriptures. We should be known for living a grace-centered life. We should be known for being forgiven and being forgiving. But the Apostle Paul and our passage today focuses on one thing in particular for which Christians should be known. And that is not just hope, but a super abundance of hope. 
Robert Haldane, in his commentary on Romans, wrote this. The people of God have high hopes. The late James Montgomery Boyce wrote this in his commentary. We have divine, uplifting, great, overwhelming, and overpowering hopes. So let's be hopeful, abound in hope, and let the world know why, end quote. We should be known not only for hope, but for excessive, over-the-top, superabundant hope. Today we'll approach this passage by looking at three things. First, in this passage we see the Messiah of hope is declared so that we will know why we hope. And then secondly, we will look at the means of hope so that we might understand how we are to hope. And then the magnitude of hope concludes the passage encouraging us to hope and that our hope would be excessive. So first, why do we have hope? God has shown mercy to both Jew and Gentile through the fulfillment of the promises of Messiah in Jesus who became a servant to redeem both Jew and Gentile from their sin to reconcile them to God and to reconcile them to one another. And in so doing, hope has come both to Jew and to Gentile in Christ Jesus. A depiction of the hope that Christ brings is seen in probably one of the most unusual and unexpected places. It was during World War I in the muddy, cold, and bleak conditions along one section of the Western Front as soldiers fought and struggled in trenches. Late Christmas Eve, 1914, the soldiers of the British Expeditionary Force heard what they did not expect. German soldiers in the trenches opposite them singing Christmas carols. Messages were exchanged that evening between the two lines. The, the next day, British and German soldiers took photographs together. They exchanged gifts. They even played a game of football there in no man's land between the two lines. Amid war, if but for a brief moment, two enemies set aside their hostilities and came together in peace. The Christmas truce of 1914 was short-lived, but it pictures the result of Christ bringing peace. He came as a servant to bring peace to mankind, to bring the hope of salvation to both Jew and Gentile, to all nations, resulting in peace with God and peace between men, even former enemies. And this peace lasts for an eternity. 
In verse 8, we learn Jesus brought hope to the Jews, the circumcised, Paul says, by becoming a servant. Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, did not come down from heaven in power, nor in kingly regalia, but he came as a servant. As we saw in the incarnation, the first Sunday of Advent, he came down, he set aside his divine rights for a time to come as a servant. We read about this in the Lord's own words in Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. Jesus said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Our Lord served by giving his life as a sacrifice in the place of sinners like you and me. We read about this two weeks ago when we looked at the servant song passage in Isaiah chapter 52 verse 13 or verse 12 through Isaiah 53, 12. And that foretells of the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ, the servant suffering that he endured on our behalf. And just as one example, one verse, verse 5 from Isaiah 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. The purpose for Jesus becoming a servant for the circumcised, the Jew, as Paul notes, was to confirm God's promises made throughout the Old Testament concerning Messiah who would come and do all that was necessary to save God's covenant people from their sin. And he confirmed those promises by fulfilling them. And this confirmed to the Jew that God indeed is faithful to keep his promise. That God is faithful to give hope to the Jewish people. But then Paul shows it was not only for the purpose of Jesus coming as a servant to bring hope to the Jews. He also came as a servant to bring hope to the Gentiles. He says this in in verse 9, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Jesus' hope for both Jew and Gentile. Jesus' hope for the nations. Paul appeals to the Old Testament to show the inclusion of the Gentiles in God's great plan of salvation. Jesus came, and in in so fulfilling these promises, Jesus was not bringing something new. Jesus was not breaking forth in the first century, innovating with respect to God's plan. No, this plan was God's plan from the very outset to include both Jew and Gentiles in his covenant people. We find a number of Old Testament passages quoted in just this passage that we read this morning. Verses 9 through 12 include a reference to 2 Samuel twenty-two fifty 50 and Psalm eighteen forty-nine in Romans 15, verse 9. And then in Romans 15, verse 10, we find Deuteronomy 32, 43 quoted. And in Romans 15, 11, there Paul quotes from Psalm 117 in verse 1. And then in verse 12 of Romans 15, Isaiah 11:10 is referenced. 
And I want us to look specifically at this passage from Isaiah. Brandon read earlier from Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. The prophet tells of the worldwide transformation that Messiah would bring. And read again Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. In the back of your mind, be thinking, transformation of the entire world. The reign of the root of Jesse, Messiah, will extend the Jewish people and beyond to all peoples, to all nations. Let me just read again from verse 10 of Isaiah 11. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. We find similar promises of God's people, including the nations, in passages like Psalm 96, which is called the Great Commission of the Old Testament. I'll just read a couple of verses. In verse 3, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the peoples. And then in verse 10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. The very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, has a beautiful picture of what the Old Testament promised and Jesus fulfilled and the end result of that. Listen to this passage in Revelation 7 verses 9 through 10. As John was looking into the very throne room of heaven and there seeing the reality of the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ his transforming work worldwide. Listen to this. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What a marvelous, wondrous picture of the worldwide transforming work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we have to look forward to in the day of consummation. The nations gathered around the throne worshiping the Lamb. This is Paul's point. Jesus came as a servant to redeem people from the nations, Jew and Gentile. And the Apostle Paul says this in another way, in another book, Ephesians chapter 2. I'll just read two verses here, verses 13 and 14. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both, Jew and Gentile, one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The Christmas truce of 1914 is but a dim picture of the glorious reality of Christ's servanthood, his coming as a servant to bring salvation to all peoples, killing, putting to death the hostility 
between people and between people and God, resulting in peace, a peace that will last. And Paul ends verse 12 by appealing to Matthew chapter 12 and verse 21. And Matthew 12 and verse 21 is actually based on Isaiah 11 and verse 10, where in Matthew 12, 21, and the reason that verse 12 in Romans 15 ends the way it does is because of what is said in Matthew 12, 21, where the root of Jesse will stand as a signal. That's the word from Isaiah 11:10. But in Matthew 12, 21, it is translated as a hope. A hope for the people, Jew and Gentile. There is one people of God. There is one Savior of the nations. There is one way of salvation. And there is one reason for the people of the nations to have hope. And that reason is the hope of Messiah that is completely and totally fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, how do we come to possess hope? The means of hope is God's gracious filling of his people with joy and with peace through faith by the power of the Holy Spirit that they may hope abundantly. True hope cannot be manufactured and therefore it cannot be purchased at your local store. It cannot be conjured up by self-effort. Positive thinking cannot really bring the true hope that we find promised in the Bible to God's people. No human being can provide hope for me, and I can't provide hope for you or even for my wife or my children or grandchildren. We understand the biblical teaching about salvation, that we are saved by grace and through faith. Well, the same can be said of hope. In fact, Paul, in effect, says this, that we hope by grace, it is a gift, through faith, faith itself is a gift, and the instrument through which we are able to hope. Verse 13 is often used as a benediction, and it is a great benediction as we end worship services. It is a brief verse, but it is theologically dense. What does this verse teach? I just simply want to list several things. First, this verse teaches hope is from God, and the only proof I need is the way the, way the verse begins that God is the source. He is the God of hope. So if you want to be hopeful, don't turn to me, don't turn to your family, don't turn to anyone else, don't go try to buy it. At your local store, turn to God. Secondly, hope is by grace. The God of hope graciously fills his people with joy and peace. These are gifts from God. In fact, we don't deserve joy and peace, but God graciously bestows them on us, and we gratefully receive them. Third, hope is through the means or the instrumentality of faith. 
Joy and peace are received as gifts. They're a function of God's grace through the gift and instrument of faith. And this really is the understanding that of, of Paul's phrase, joy and peace in believing. It is through faith that we receive joy and peace. We, we, we may think about faith in a number of ways, but one way to think about it is trust. Another way to think about it is lifting up empty hands to God in total reliance upon Him as the only one who, who we can depend on to provide what we need. Another way to think about faith is faith being a conduit through which we receive all that God has for us. They all point to the same reality. Faith is the means through which God imparts to us His good gifts, and in this case, the gifts of joy and peace. And fourth, hope is empowered by the Holy Spirit. I am reminded of Paul's words in that beautiful prayer that he has for the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 3, and I'll just read a couple of verses. I would encourage you to read that entire prayer. It's a prayer not only for the Ephesians, it's Paul's prayer for you and me. And it's a great prayer for us to pray for one another. Please feel free to pray that prayer for me. I need it. <laughs> and Paul writes this in verses 16 and 17, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened, strengthened with all power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through, by means of, through the instrumentality of faith. We are empowered to hope by the Holy Spirit as we've received God's good, good gifts of joy and peace through faith. Hope is from the God of hope. And it is received by grace through the means of faith. Therefore, we truly do hope by grace, through faith. And then third, what should be the magnitude of hope? Christians are to experience not just hope, but a superabundance of hope. Excessive hope. Over-the-top hope. We live in a very materialistic age. And I think most of us struggle with desiring things in excess, be them good things or bad things. And sometimes desiring a good thing in excess is a bad thing. But there is one thing that we are to desire in excess, and that is hope. We may struggle to have hope even in, in a small measure. Superabounding hope, as the Apostle Paul describes it here, seems to be a pipe dream. Think, think about our, the, the cultural divide that is in our country. Think of the gross moral decay that we see each and every day as we look about at our world. Consider the division 
the sin, the, the watered-down spirituality, the, the uh, very low level of commitment to the Scriptures that is often reflected in Christianity in our day. Think of our own struggles with sin and with others and with living biblically day to day and even with loving Christ first. Our circumstances would seem to point to hopelessness. And you have to ask the question, has Paul spoken here with hyperbole? Superabounding hope? Are you kidding? Why is it often that we lack hope? And if we are frank with ourselves and with others, we, we might say that it is hard for me to even hope in a teeny tiny degree. And here the Apostle Paul is telling me to hope excessively, abundantly, super abundantly. Why do we lack hope? What the Apostle Paul is showing us here is the reason we lack hope is because we lack faith. So if you want to experience superabounding hope, if you desire that this magnitude of hope might characterize your life more and more, the answer is not to buckle down and try and hope. The answer is to buckle down and believe in the God of hope more and more. Verse 13 may be summarized in this way. The more we trust God, the more we believe in the God of hope, the more he will grant to us through faith, joy, and peace, and the more we will experience to excess, to superabundance, hope by the power of the Spirit. We cannot hope apart from the power of the Spirit. We cannot hope apart from the power of the Spirit working through faith. We cannot hope abundantly without hope coming from the God of hope. So the answer to our hopelessness is not to hope more, it's to believe more in the God of hope. And one way to think about this is the more our souls are anchored in Christ by faith, the greater will be our hope. Think of a ship that has a very strong anchor and it is anchored out in the ocean or inner harbor, wherever it is anchored. And just how solidly it is anchored, that will depend upon will that ship be able to withstand the storms. Our souls being anchored in Christ like a ship means that we can withstand the greatest storm like those soldiers in the trenches in 1914. Our hope that is firmly anchored means that our faith and hope will not shift there in Christ. 
our hope that is anchored by faith in Christ gets deeper, gets wider, gets stronger. Hope that is anchored in Christ is not merely abundant, but superabundant, as our word in this text implies. Hope that is anchored in Christ results in a hope that is excessive, over the top. And this type of hope is exactly what we need to desire in excess. And what results in when our lives are characterized by superabounding hope, hoping in excess, I want to suggest just uh, two things. And the first is this. Abounding hope impacts others. Remember the quote from Dr. Boyce. It ended with this, abound in hope and let the world know why. This type of hope reflects the source of our hope and the reason for our hope. And hoping in excess impacts others. Already this year, I have watched Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas many, many times. I don't know when we started, sometime earlier in the year. And my favorite character, of course, is Max the dog. And you know the story. The old Grinch hated Christmas. No one quite knows the reason. But I think that the most likely reason of all may have been that his heart was two sizes too small. Along with Max on Christmas Eve, the Grinch on his sleigh went down in, into Whoville and he stole all of their Christmas presents, took all of their food just completely took everything that would have any resemblance of the Christmas spirit in an attempt to destroy their happiness and their joy and their hope. And the Grinch hoped, and all the Who's down in Whoville will cry, Boo-hoo! That's a noise, grinned the Grinch, that I simply must hear. But on Christmas morning, he did hear noise. It started in low, then it started to grow. But the sound wasn't sad. Why, this sound sounded merry. It, it couldn't be so, but it was merry, fairy. His dastardly deeds did not change the who's. But the who's response changed the Grinch. Well, in Whoville they say that the Grinch's small heart grew three sizes that day. Dr. Seuss helps us to see how the way we live impacts others. Paul tells us that others are impacted 
by our lives, when our lives are characterized by such a faith, a growing faith in Christ Jesus, when our souls are so anchored by faith in him that our lives overflow with super abundant hope. And they may very well ask, as Dr. Boyce suggests, why are you so hopeful and how will we answer? The Lord Jesus Christ. And this superabundant hope is possible for you if you put your faith and trust in him. Hope impacts other people. The second reason is God's glory. And this is an even greater motivation to be hopeful. God's glory. Notice in verses 8 through 9 that Jesus came as a servant to the Gentiles that they might glorify God because of his saving mercies that they had received. And when we live in hope of God's saving mercies, mercies, he will be glorified. So we live for the glory of God, as our catechism teaches us, the very first question, but it also means that we hope in superabundance for the glory of God. What, what greater motivation do we need to, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and trust the power of the Holy Spirit to bring joy and peace that we would overflow with superabundant hope. Well, Charlie Munger, as we started out with Charlie, he was known for his witty, sagely Mungerisms. Remember what he said, you know, when you're going through a rough pot, uh, patch in your life, you have to soldier on. Hey, it's okay to cry, but, but don't quit. Well, Paul gives us infinitely greater advice in this passage today, in all of life, in the smooth places and in the rough patches, soldier on by faith, a growing faith in Christ. Hey, hey, Christian, it is okay to cry when, when life gets tough in those rough patches, but don't quit trusting the God of hope that we, as God's people, may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, the more we trust God, the God of hope, the more we hope for his glory. Let us pray. Father, I pray that you would continue to work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. Father, give us all that we need, that we would be a people of hope, that others might be impacted, yes, but more than anything, that you would be glorified. And we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Would you please take your hymnal, turn to hymn number 521. Let us stand and sing, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less.